Okay, so thank you all. Thank you all very much for uh, joining us this evening for our uh, continuing uh, Shoshinge sessions, our Shoshinge study uh, session. So I have, you may notice me kind of looking over to the side here. Um, I have another monitor uh, going so that I can see everybody in the gallery view as well. Um, again, this portion that's recorded is being recorded in uh, just speaker view for today. So uh, we're continuing our study of uh, Shoshinge, and I'm very grateful to those who are able to join us live uh, on Zoom this evening. Um, also, a warm welcome to anyone who's going to be watching this uh, after the session. Um, you know, uh, on the recording that will eventually be posted uh, on the Samatea Buddhist Temple website. So uh, we're uh, continuing now into the section of the, uh, we call the Pure Land Masters. So the Shoshinge was composed by Shindan Shonin, the founder of our uh, Jodo Shinshu Buddhist tradition. And it serves as a kind of summary uh, of the essential matters of the Pure Land tradition. The first section of it, uh, which we have been talking about for most of this year and, and part of last year as well, focuses on uh, sections from the sutras. And so we've been looking at the specific uh, passages, especially from the larger sutra uh, on the Pure Land teaching uh, that our uh, Shinran is referring to in Shoshinge. And then uh, from today, we'll be looking at the uh, commentaries uh, and the writings of the Pure Land Masters, the uh, important teachers from India, China, and Japan, who have further clarified this teaching for us uh, down through the ages. And so it's important to note that when Shinran Shonin shares the teachings, he doesn't think of himself as sharing something that is in any way new or original. His whole purpose uh, in writing and in um, leaving these teachings for us is to illustrate how this Pure Land teaching that he shares uh, originates with the Buddha and has been faithfully passed down through the generations. And so there is a kind of a link, a continuity of meaning and understanding uh, from Shinran Shonin uh, all the way back to the Buddha and then also then down to, to our day following in the teachings that we received from Shinran. And so we chanted Shoshinge um, just now for those who are able to join, join us. And in that chanting, we are stepping into that uh, continuous transmission of the Pure Land teaching going back to Shakyamuni Buddha in this world. Um, and so uh, there are different ways of looking at and approaching uh, Shoshinge and trying to uh, understand uh, Shoshinge's uh, teachings. Um, the approach that I'm taking in this this session, these sessions, uh, is to focus on looking at the passages that Shinran is referring to in Shoshinge. So to take Shoshinge as a kind of lens into the vast, vast Pure Land tradition of of writing and the way teachings have been passed down in that form. And so we'll be looking at some of that this evening. And I'll go ahead and start sharing my screen at this time. Um, 
to share this handout um, here. Let's see. There we go. Um, how is the size? Is is the size okay here? Yes. Okay, good. So very good. Okay, great. So this um, this is the passage of Shoshige that we'll be uh, looking at here this evening, and I'll go ahead and read read these words of, of Shinran Shonin. Shakyamuni Tathagata on Mount Lanka prophesied to the multitudes that in South India, the Mahasattva Nagarjuna would appear in this world to crush the views of being and non-being. So Shakyamuni Tathagata uh, refers to the teacher we, we call the historical, the, the Buddha, the historical Buddha. Um, Tathagata is a, a kind of an honorific title for a Buddha. Uh, it refers to uh, one who has come forth from, uh, from suchness or from true reality, from thusness. Uh, that's called the thus come one. So the one who has gone into the world of enlightenment and then returned back into that world to come to us and come into our lives. Um, so it's another name for a Buddha. So if you come across this word Tathagata uh, in your reading of uh, Buddhist scriptures, uh, note that that's referring to a Buddha. And Shakyamuni is the name of a specific uh, Buddha uh, that is considered to be the one who brings the Dharma into our world, the Buddha who lived in our world, Siddhartha Gautama. So Shakyamuni Tathagata is a historical figure. And so we also uh, talk about Amida Tathagata and Lokeshvara Raja Tathagata. Um, there are many Buddhas that appear in what we call the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. And so um, for, for us, Shakyamuni is uh, the, the one who most people like kind of out in the world when they talk about the Buddha uh, as the founder of the Buddhist religion, they're referring to uh, Shakyamuni Tathagata. And um, he lived in, in India and uh, about uh, the, around the year 500 BCE, so about 2,500 years ago. And in his teachings, he occasionally made prophecies. He said, "This this will happen. I predict that this will this will uh, you know that um, such and such uh, occurrence will will happen uh, at some point in the future." And on one occasion, in the uh, Lankavatara Sutra, so it's an important sutra, especially important actually to the Zen tradition. Um, Shakyamuni predicts that Nagarjuna, that there's going to be this, this, this monk who will come into the world, will live in South India, uh, his name will be Nagarjuna, and he will crush the views of being and non-being. And this is, this section of the Shoshinge is actually a pretty close um, kind of uh, paraphrase 
of this this section of the Lankavatara Sutra. So it's actually he's citing this this other this other sutra, um, and it's very the, the phrasing is very similar to what we find here in the Shoshinge. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, this today. Focus a little bit of talking a little bit about Nagarjuna, um, and then also. Um, the the views of being and and non-being. Now Nagarjuna uh, is a, a teacher who is revered uh, throughout the Mahayana Buddhist uh, tradition. So not just in Pure Land Buddhism, but most Mahayana Buddhist traditions will kind of look to Nagarjuna as one of their uh, kind of fundamental uh, teachers, one of the the early teachers of their tradition. And so it's true, he's revered in the Zen tradition, he's revered in Tibetan Buddhism, um, he's, and then has an important role in our Pure Land uh, Buddhist tradition as well. And the uh, important innovation of uh, Nagarjuna's uh, teachings, or I shouldn't say maybe innovation, but rather clarification, is his teachings on uh, what we call the middle way, uh, or, or uh, Majyamika called Majamaka in, in Sanskrit, but this idea of, of the middle way as the, the middle way between extremes of, of saying being and non-being, or yes and no, it is or it is not, um, and to sort of undermine our ideas of our own certainty about the way things are. So um, to, to begin to just say a little bit about the idea of what is the middle way. You've probably uh, perhaps heard of this in your uh, studies of Buddhism, this, uh, this teaching of the middle way or the middle path. And um, I wanna start by, um, I'll actually take down the screen share for just a moment um, and just say a little bit uh, about some, some background on the idea of the middle way as it appears in the story of the life of Shakyamuni Tathagata or Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, Shakyamuni Buddha was born into a prince, uh, he was born as a prince into a very wealthy uh, royal family, and he lived a life of, of luxury, of great comfort, a life of uh, satisfied you know, desire, uh, everything that he wanted was provided to him by, um, by his father, who was very intent on keeping him comfortable there in the palace. And he really lived a life of getting uh, his desires fulfilled, of, uh, of kind of an indulgence, as it were. And he found that that was ultimately a, a kind of an empty existence and did not bring lasting satisfaction. And so in time, at the age of 29, he left the palace. He left all that behind and set out to uh, discover um, a path to freedom, freedom from suffering, but also freedom from that desire. And so he went kind of to the other extreme of rather than pursuing and indulging his uh, his desires for, for comfort, for delicious food, for you know, beautiful sights and being surrounded by beautiful people. Uh, he lived a life of solitude. He uh, wore almost no clothing at all. He exposed himself uh, to the elements 
um, living, you know, out, outdoors, um, in very hot weather, very cold weather, uh, rather than uh, seeking the shade on a sunny or rainy day, he would deliberately go out and expose himself to the elements. He would not take the food that he needed to nourish his body. Uh, it's said that he pursued these practices to a point where he was only subsisting on a single grain of rice every day. So essentially kind of starving himself to death. Um, and then through that process, he wound up uh, collapsing at one point in the forest. Um, this may be a familiar story for those of you who are familiar with the life of the Buddha. Um, and then while he was lying there, uh, a young woman came by carrying an offering of milk for uh, a local forest spirit. Initially, she thought that this was the forest spirit and she reached out to, you know, oh, I gotta help, help this spirit. And so she poured the milk uh, into his mouth and then he, you know, he was essentially unconscious, but then he just naturally kind of just drank it as a kind of instinctive, you know, uh, physical response. And in that nourishment, he realized that he was finding the energy that he would need to be able to pursue his practices. And so then he began to receive the generosity of others. He received um, a, uh, he received a, uh, a, a collection, a bushel of grass from a woodcutter that he used then as a cushion. He received these offerings of milk from Sujata. And then he received the shade of a tree, a tree we call the Bodhi tree. So the Bodhi tree represents his receiving the middle path, going and receiving this shade, the middle path between the extremes of indulgence and the extremes of self-denial. Um, so in a, in a basic sense, when we talk about the, the middle way or the middle path in Buddhism, um, it points to this, this middle way between um, kind of extreme indulgence and following into greed, uh, as well as uh, extreme asceticism and denying one's own needs and actually harming oneself through um, not receiving the things that one needs. And so um, this middle way uh, serves as the kind of essential perspective for Buddhist practice. And in uh, Nagarjuna's time, Nagarjuna specifically uh, takes this uh, important sort of practical uh, guideline of the middle way and applies it in a philosophical way, sort of the underlying way of thinking about what is real and true. And he's a very, you know, skilled and, and um, you know, remarkable uh, logician, but he, he uses this teaching of the middle way to illuminate a middle way between the extremes essentially of like yes and no, or it is and it is not. And his purpose is to uh, cause us to always question our ideas of our own correctness. The idea that I have the right idea and someone else uh, has the wrong idea, that they're mistaken. I'm right and you're wrong. Um, to let go of this uh, idea of me and mine with regard to one's own correctness. And so um, the, the form that that takes then is um, this letting go of the ideas, the basic ideas of 
being and non-being. It is or it is not. It exists or it doesn't. Um, the sense of, of certainty in our own perceptions and our own, um, the idea that I can figure out through my own kind of discriminating consciousness uh, what is true and real. Nagarjuna uh, undermines that perspective and shows it to be false. And so the other important teaching that Nagarjuna is associated with is the teaching of emptiness. The idea that the idea that me and mine uh, is not uh, some substantial existing reality, but is a creation of my own mind. Um, you know, maybe I could say, well, I have, I have a driver's license. It says my name, Henry Adams. That means I'm real, right? Um, you know, people call me by my name. Um, and the, the Buddhist teachings, the teachings of Nagarjuna and, and Shakyamuni himself, encourage us, us to kind of to, to look, look at that a little more closely and say, well, you know, what is this thing called Henry? Is it this physical body? That was, you know, born in 19, that came into shape in 1977, and who knows how much longer it's going to last. Um, you know, it's it's already changing, it's already getting older, it's already getting its aches and pains and less hair and all of these these things, these these impermanence is there in in this this body. So it's not this physical body. You know, how about how about my mind? Um, well, where does it come from? It comes from my parents, it comes from my teachers, my family, uh, from all of you and the conversations that we have, creates my experience. And so nothing about me exists separate from its relationships with uh, other, other, other things, other people, other animals, plants, the air we breathe, the water we drink. Um, and so in that sense, everything is said to be empty of a separate self. So that's an important teaching of, of Nagarjuna's. Um, so then let's return for a moment to this handout here. So, um, so in this, this passage, uh, this uh, section from Shoshinge, uh, Shinran refers to crushing the views of being and non-being. And there are a couple of places in uh, Shinran's uh, important writing we call the Kyogyo Shinsho, which is also where the Shoshinge appears, the true teaching practice and realization of the Pure Land Way, uh, where Shinran cites other uh, teachings from the seven masters referring to um, this uh, matter of being and non-being. One of those is this section from Shandao's commentary on the Contemplation Sutra. Um, Shandao writes, the city of bliss, tranquil and uncreated in the West is ultimately free and peaceful, far removed from being and non-being. Great compassion imbues the heart so that one sports in the Dharma realm. Transforming oneself into various bodies, one benefits all beings equally without discrimination. So this passage points to the, um, the benefit of this insight, this wisdom. How does this wisdom of letting go of being and non-being uh, take form in the lives of those 
who uh, realized birth in the Pure Land of Amida Buddha. And it takes form in, uh, in the shape of compassion. So letting go of my idea of me as separate from you, of this is right and that's wrong, uh, I receive great openness of heart. So I'm able to kind of sport in the Dharma realm, which is to say, to, to move freely and even playfully, uh, to help others, to take whatever form I need to, to help everyone equally according to their needs without discrimination. You know, it's sort of like you wouldn't say, oh, that's not my job. I'm not, I'm not that. I'm, you know, I think about, you know, for example, in, in my relationship, you know, with my family, um, as a parent, you know, at times, uh, I'm a teacher, you know, in the pandemic years, I was much more of a teacher than I ever really thought I would want to be. Um, you know, sometimes I'm a cook, not a very good one, but sometimes I'm a cook. I spent a lot of time as a janitor and as a dishwasher. Um, that's my main, main, the main form that I take <laughs> every morning and do the dishes from the night before. Um, sometimes I'm a doctor or a nurse, you know, uh, applying bandages and so forth. So, you know, I could say, well, no, that's not what I do. I'm a priest. So I can, you know, I can, I can give a Dharma talk or I can lead chanting in the morning, but I can't do these other things. But then that limits my ability to be helpful. And so by letting go of our ideas of me and mine, of is and is not, then we can re realize great compassion. And this is true, I think, especially if we think about our relationship to other people. This person is part of my group or is not part of my group. Oh, you know, like my own kids are very easy to be compassionate and caring towards. That's called, in Buddhism, we call that small, small compassion. It's easy to be compassionate for people you like, your, your, your parents, your kids, your best friends, you know, your partners. Um, that's easy. That's, that's, that's called small compassion. Then there's something called medium compassion, uh, which is compassion based on understanding of, of the Dharma. So you hear these teachings and you think, I should really be uh, kind to others, regardless of whether they're my family members or not. So that's medium compassion. You hear the teachings and then you're able to apply them based on your understanding. Now, this great compassion is uh, unconditional. It extends to everyone without, uh, without regard to having a good reason to be compassionate for them. In fact, it even extends to people we really dislike or have a hard time with, to be compassionate for that person who just really drives us up a wall. That is what we call great compassion. That's the compassion of the Buddha. And it becomes possible when we can let go of this idea of is or is not. This person is my friend. This person is my enemy and is not my friend. If we can let go of that aspect of being and non-being, then we can realize this great compassion. Um, and Nagarjuna's significance is that he, um, he clarified this, this transformation. So um, I want to introduce uh, one, more, one more section here um, 
before I, I switch off the recording. And this is from Tanwan. And this is very interesting because this, um, this, this is from Tanwan's Gathas and Praise of Amida Buddha. And in this section of, of Tanwan's writings, Tanwan um, was a, a Chinese teacher who lived much, much later uh, than Nagarjuna. And Tanwan provides this sort of insight with regard to Nagarjuna and his significance. And then Shinran picks that up. So we see this uh, teaching appears in the Lankavatara Sutra, and Tanwan picks it up and presents it in Gathas and Praise of Amida Buddha. And then Shinran, who took, had great reverence for Tanwan, he takes it and passes it on. So again, um, with all of these things, you know, it's not something original, like Shinran was the first one to come up with this. He, he doesn't, that's not the way he, uh, he shares the teachings, but it always goes back to something earlier, something that he has received. So um, I'll read this, this passage, this beautiful, uh, beautiful verses from Tanwan. Since attainment of Buddhahood, 10 kalpas have passed. The Buddha's life indeed has no measure. Dharma body's wheel of light pervades the Dharma realm shining on the blind and ignorant of the world, hence I bow in homage. The light that is wisdom cannot be measured, hence the Buddha is called immeasurable light. All limited beings receive this dawn light, thus I pay homage to the true and real light. Infinite is the wheel-like light that brings emancipation, hence the Buddha is called boundless light, all touched by it are freed from being and non-being. Thus, I pay homage to the enlightenment of non-discrimination. The cloud of light is unhindered like boundless space. Hence, the Buddha is called unhindered light. It benefits all beings caught in hindrances. Thus, I bow in homage to the one beyond conception. The light of purity is beyond compare. Hence, the Buddha is called unequaled one. The Buddha is called unequaled light. Those who encounter it are rid of karmic bonds. Thus, I pay homage to the ultimate shelter. None excepting the Buddhas can fathom this light. Hence, the Buddha is called inconceivable light. The Buddhas of the ten quarters all extol birth and praise Amida's virtue. Thus, I pay homage. The majestic light trans transcends forms it cannot be named. Hence, the Buddha is called inexpressible light. With this light as cause, Buddhahood was attained. Its resplendence is praised by all Buddhas. Thus, I bow in homage. The light in its luminosity surpasses sun and moon. Hence, the Buddha is called light that surpasses sun and moon. Even Shakyamuni's praise is not exhaustive. Thus, I pay homage to the unequaled. The great master Nagarjuna Mahasattva manifested form and first corrected distortions of the teaching. He closed off wrong views and opened the right path. He is, he is the eye for all beings of this Jambudvipa continent. Reverently accepting the honored one's words, he reached the stage of joy, took refuge in Amida, and was born in the land of happiness. So um, those of you who are uh, familiar with 
the uh, Shoshinge and the Wasan that we chant, um, we'll notice that um, the, the six uh, Japanese hymns, the first six Wasan that we chant are um, very much based on uh, these, these uh, verses from Tanlon as well. So um, again, this, this passage shows that this letting go of being and non-being is the path to compassion, to let go of my ideas of me and mine, you, know, you and yours, um, and to really open one's heart through this uh, insight of the Buddha's wisdom, uh, this insight into non-being and non-being is the way in which the Buddha uh, touches all beings and brings this sort of transforming wisdom and compassion into their lives. So um, at this point, uh, having kind of explored some of these insights, um, I want to uh, switch off the recording and then we'll have, uh, can open up for some discussion and conversation uh, based on these, these teachings, this perspective of Nagarjuna, this emptiness, it's kind of uh, heavy, heavy duty um, Mahayana philosophy, um, but it's, it's I think, a, a teaching that also reflects a lot of the truth we experience in our daily lives. So um, I'll stop the recording here and we can um, enter into our discussion time. Namam Namam